Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Straight from the source tonight, 24 hours after the Supreme Court hit the brakes on Donald Trump's federal election case, Jack Smith hitting the gas on another. Just proposed a surprising new date for the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. For Trump, his campaign, and his likely Republican convention, it could be quite explosive. Also, a split screen playing out on the southern border, dueling visits by the current president and his predecessor. As president Biden is looking to turn around an area where voters say he's the weakest, as Trump is really looking to sabotage getting anything done in Washington so he can use it to hurt Biden come November. Also, a CNN exclusive, our conversation with Senator Bernie Sanders, who had some scathing criticism of Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu and called for an immediate end to the war in Gaza and a lot more that you'll want to see. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, we start as we are witnessing the aftershocks, really, of that Supreme Court decision that has imploded the Trump legal calendar. Jack Smith is now suggesting that they move the start date for that trial in the classified documents case down in Mar-a-Lago, a move that comes just one day after the justices slammed the brakes on the case against Trump in Washington for his efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Late this evening, the special counsel's office filed this new motion that you're seeing here, asking for Donald Trump and two of his co-defendants to stand trial beginning July the 8th. One other co-defendant a little bit after that. The special counsel's team wants to get basically at least one case heard before Election Day in November. Trump's legal team responded with a now familiar retort, saying that a fair trial cannot be held until after the 2024 presidential election is concluded. I'm quoting them. But they did offer another date this year. And the judge, who has been mired in some controversy in this case, Judge Eileen Cannon, is expected to hash it out in a hearing tomorrow in Florida. That could be critical to the future of the classified documents case. I'm joined tonight by an attorney who used to represent Donald Trump in the classified documents case and others, Jim Trusty. Great to have you back here, Jim. You know, in this, when you look at it, what Jack Smith is asking for is for Trump and Walt Nauta and, Nauta and Carlos to go to trial on July 8th. The three defense attorneys want Trump, excuse me, want their trial to start in July, want another one to start in August. Uh, what do you think this likely ultimately lands based on the what Jack Smith wants and what the defense attorneys are arguing? Yeah, I'm going to go with none of the above. <laughs> you know, what's happening, I mean, you, you talk about this judge being, quote, mired in controversy. She's actually taking a very incremental approach to everything when it comes to scheduling. And that's what you normally see in federal court. It's talking to the parties. Where are we on discovery? Where are we on classified documents? 
You've got five motions to dismiss pending right now. You've got 10 DOJ attorneys entering their appearance on the case. This is not a quick and simple matter. And so Jack Smith, I think the approach he took was desperate to try something against President Trump before the election, which is really the wrong paradigm for DOJ to take, for Jack and the attorney general to take. And of course, the other side is saying we can't possibly do this before the election. You know, there, there's some blame to be had perhaps on both sides for taking kind of extreme positions. But as a former prosecutor of 27 years, I can't get over the fact that DOJ is admittedly making this a political exercise. They're basically saying, we've got to do this before the election. And that's just not what you normally see in a white collar case for a non-incarcerated defendant. So I think we're going to chug along for another month or two. We might see some really fascinating motions hearings in Florida, I think very important ones. But I suspect that trial's not happening this summer for a variety of reasons. Well, they're not explicitly saying it's about the election. That's actually, you know, kind of Jack Smith's thing. He has not mentioned the, the word election in his filings. So, so when do you think the classified documents case for Trump actually happens? Well, it depends on a lot of factors that we don't know yet. You know, there's, there's, I think, actually very significant motions, not boilerplate type things you routine, routinely file, but really critical ones about the Presidential Records Act. Uh, the Trump team wants that litigated in about two weeks. And I think even Jack said something about April for that. So that's a huge threshold. I haven't seen a motion relating to the search warrant, but I think that's a very viable issue in this case, which is unusual. Okay, so there's, so there's some real fundamental argue, stuff. And you've got the. Where do you guess it could go? Uh, I think if we get past the summer, then the natural reluctance of the court is probably to, to the benefit of President Trump to say, and look, that used to be a DOJ policy. We don't try to interfere with elections by trying cases or even bringing indictments on the eve of an election. So I think if we get to May and she's not locked in on July or August, and we may know more tomorrow, um, that if she's not locked in on those dates, then it might slide to 2025. And that's actually kind of a typical process for a classified document, complex white collar case. Yeah, but I'll note that, I mean, these cases were brought some time ago, and certainly the Trump team has sought to delay them because they believe it's to their benefit. And, and so when I look at this and you see what Trump's team is asking for here, the three de the, the defense attorneys for all three co-defendants, what they're asking for uh, in September, I mean, we could find out in June from the Supreme Court what they think about the immunity claim. That would then be able to restart the case in D.C. technically, but, but if this classified documents case is scheduled... Is that a way to kind of box Judge Chuck Kinnan by the by the Trump team by saying, well, sorry, we've got the classified documents case now that we have to deal with and there's no time for the federal election case? Yeah, I mean, good question. I don't know for sure, because the judge in D.C. has been very uh, strong willed about scheduling and, and that has fed into Jack Smith's desire to try that case yesterday. So, yeah, there is this tug of war between who's going to have the, the pr scheduling priority. But frankly, the case in front of the Supreme Court uh, could easily have a significant effect in Florida as well and could lead, believe it or not, and I hate to even say this out loud, but to additional litigation about whether or not certain activities were within the scope of presidential responsibilities. A little bit like when you have executive privilege litigation. So we could be at round one of a Supreme Court exercise on immunity. If they rule generally in favor of the president, then you could end up having more litigation and more Supreme Court before anybody ever thinks about a real trial date. Well, let me ask you on that, because that is interesting. And in the order, as I was looking at it, the Supreme Court basically defined the question that, they're, that they plan to answer here, which is, and I'm quoting, whether and if so, to what extent does a former president enjoy presidential immunity from criminal prosecution 
for conduct alleged to involve official acts during his tenure in office. One, I noticed they are totally ignoring his claims of double jeopardy. It seems like they're not buying that at all. But two, you know, he's been arguing absolute immunity. But since they say whether and if so, to what extent, is that telling you that they don't buy the broad immunity claim right off the bat? I mean, it's a dangerous game to read the tea leaves too much. And, and I, I, though I do agree with you about the double jeopardy claim. That would never really grab me as, uh, as having a lot of traction. Look, I think, <coughs> excuse me, I think there's a little bit of overstatement, which is when they talk about absolute immunity, it's still tempered by the need for the actions to be within the presidential responsibility. So it's not really the king can do no wrong, period. It's he has absolute immunity if the actions are related to specific duties, even the outer perimeter of the presidential duty. So it's a real nuanced term, but it basically comes closer to qualified immunity than it sounds. But that's not I think really that's the Trump's area team. where the Supreme Court is going to be tempted to rule. That's not really what Trump's team argued. I mean, Sorry? they bought in on that that hypothetical that was floated by the judge about using SEAL Team 6 to kill a political opponent. They said technically, yeah, that, that they did agree with that. So, I mean, that's not Would you I mean, I don't think anyone would consider that to be an official duty of the president. Right. I hope not. Uh, I mean, look, I thought that was a, a bad moment in terms of kind of conceding to the to the hypothetical that way. And maybe the ultimate feeling tactically is, you know, we're going to shoot for the stars, but we'll be thrilled if we land at the moon, meaning we're overshooting, but we still have that kind of more limited version of immunity to play with. Uh, again, no matter how it went in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, I do think that's where the Supreme Court is going to be wrestling, which is, you know, do we afford immunity to acts within that exterior, that outer perimeter of presidential responsibilities? And you know, I tend to think they're going to say yes, and that's going to be a huge moment for President Trump. Doesn't necessarily mean Florida goes away automatically because there's a retention of documents after the presidency. There might be a and need for some evidentiary <laughs> hearings or argument on that. But I think the D.C. case would, would be in dire straits, maybe by the explicit language, but certainly by a ruling that favors this idea of kind of qualified immunity. Are you glad that you're not trying this anymore, or how do you feel about it? <laughs> Oh, I don't know. Look, anybody that's a trial lawyer, you know, when they see other lawyers, they're like, man, I should be in there doing that. But, uh, you know, look, I, I had a fascinating year representing President Trump, got to make <laughs> uh, some really good friends, meet some very interesting people. I don't regret being on it and that I don't regret being off it. Fascinating is one word. Jim Trustee, thank you for your time tonight. And for more analysis on what we're looking at tonight, I want to bring in NYU constitutional law professor Kenji Yoshino. Glad to have you back here. When you see what Jack Smith is asking for, pushing the trial date, but he wants much earlier than what the Trump team and the co-defendants, Walt, Nada, and Carlos de Oliveira, what they're suggesting. Is it somewhere where they're trying to meet in the middle? Or, or what do you make of what happens here? I think what Jack Smith is motivated by is not November. I think it's by June, which is the end of the Supreme Court's term. And I think all he's thinking about is making sure that there's no ambiguity whatsoever about what the Supreme Court said. So the one thing we know that is that by the end of June, the Supreme Court will have ruled one way or another on this executive immunity claim, and this trial is set for one. The proposed date is one week after the close of term. The immunity thing, we always talk about it in the realm of the election interference case, but Trump's also claiming that in the classified documents case. And you heard Jim Trustee saying there that he thinks he could have an argument on part of it, but it's also the willful retention and the obstruction of the efforts to, to investigate, to try to get him back, that is also at play here. And also, Trump was not in office. Can he argue presidential immunity if he was two years out of the office? Yeah, absolutely. So, like, even under the Nixon versus Fitzgerald case, which says, and the language was quoted by our earlier guest trustee, 
you know, you go to the outer perimeter of presidential actions. No one is arguing, right, that taking documents into your own home and obstructing justice are your, your official acts as president. And so keeping I think them in a ballroom, in a bathroom. Clearly beyond in, right, in any his, claim of immunity. Right. And in his filing, what you could see is that Trump was leaning heavily on being the Republican nominee, which he's not yet, but but seems like he's on the path to do. You know, they talked about the dates of the Republican National Convention. They talked about other campaign dates. How does the judge look at that? Does she take that into consideration? consideration for criminal proceedings? I think in an ideal world, she should not, right? I mean, no one is above the law. This is a criminal proceeding. She should just set the dates as it were. But I can't imagine as a human being she'll be able to ignore that. One of the most chilling things that I've seen in 25 years of teaching constitutional law is the trial schedule that the defense attorneys proposed. And I'm sure you've seen it as well, where there are blocks that say, here's when we're going to argue pretrial. That's one of the most chilling things you've ever seen? Well, it's just this idea that you have somebody who's saying, here's a pretrial motion, and then here's the Republican National Convention, because it just suggests that this is the very first time in our nation's history that we've had an individual who's a front runner running for president, who was a former president who's under a criminal indictment. This has never happened before. This is completely uncharted territory. That kind of chart did pictures worth a thousand words. It did more than anything else to knock my socks off. Yeah, you're going to have to put that on your syllabus one day, Kenji. Thanks to have you here to break that down for us. Great to have you. Ahead, we're also tracking a political split screen that we've been watching all day, but just looking at it from the big picture, Donald Trump and President Biden, both at the border, 300 miles apart, I should note, as Biden did something unexpected, challenging Trump to work with him. Also coming up, our one-on-one sit-down with Senator Bernie Sanders, who says that there are warning signs for President Biden in 2024 and also weighs in on the war in Gaza. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. remarkable split screen that played out on the front lines of the border crisis in America today is Donald Trump and President Biden were both in Texas border towns. Trump was in Eagle Pass, Texas. That's where you've seen that razor wire go up to keep migrants out. It's been a point of high tension between the state and the federal government. Meanwhile, President Biden was about 300 miles away. He was in Brownsville and his first visit to the border in 13 months, each of them pointing fingers at each other. This is a Biden invasion. The United States is being overrun by the Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of uh, vicious violation to our country. Trump highlighting crimes committed by migrants to make his point, but I should note without the data to back up his claim of this immigrant-fueled crime wave in the U.S. Immigration and border security are, of course, top concerns for voters. We've seen that in the polling. And record numbers of migrants have crossed into the United States since Biden took office. There's enough blame to go around, though, of course, including to Trump and the Republicans in the House who recently tanked 
that bipartisan immigration deal, a deal that some conservative senators said they believed was better than anything that they had had a chance to pass in decades. President Biden highlighting that point when he was in Texas today. It's time to act. It's long past time to act to Mr. Trump. Instead of playing politics with the issue, instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. We can do it together. Few people know Donald Trump's vision for the border better than the person who ran the Department of Homeland Security during his administration. Chad Wolf was Trump's acting Homeland Security Secretary, and he joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, well, just on that comment made by, by President Biden there saying that, that Trump should join him. Uh, I mean, should he? Why not take him up on his offer if Biden is ready to make real concessions on the border as he was in this Senate immigration deal? Well, Caitlin, thanks for having me on. I don't know that we need to overly complicate things. Uh, President Biden has all the authority he needs today to solve this crisis, and he can do it tomorrow with a really a stroke of a pen. The authorities that we saw during the Trump administration that were highly effective in getting the border under control and stopping the mass numbers of illegal migration that we see today. And so you can wait on a Senate bill, you can uh, ask others to join you, or you can just simply do your job and use the authorities that you have. And I think that's, that's the frustration a lot of Americans see today is they, they want the job done and they want some action, they want some results. And I would say to the Biden administration, use your authorities to get, get the American people what they want. Yeah, so there are some executive actions based on our reporting that, that, that Biden is yeah. considering taking. But I'm curious because, you know, when Trump was in office, he also took a lot of executive action on the border, uh, not as much as what Biden has done. But if you look at what he, he his executive executive actions, there were 35 of them. And I looked at the numbers today, almost 94 percent failed to stay to stand up to legal challenges. So what's the point in, in kind of signing an executive order if it's not actually going to pass muster with courts? Well, I think there's things that you can do without signing an executive order. You can use the authority that you have to restart the Remain in Mexico program. You don't need an executive order to do that. Secretary Mayorkas has the, all the authority that he needs to do that. That was one of the most single effective programs to end catch and release and to get, again, that border under control and to stop these frivolous asylum uh, com uh, grants and, and complaints that we see today. So there's things that you can do without an executive order. It's just existing authority that Congress has passed many years ago, decades ago, that resides both with the president and with the secretary. You don't have to do an EO. Uh, you can just simply put it in place today. That's restarting border wall construction, restarting our asylum cooperative agreements. And so there's a number of things here that have been tested by the courts, such as Remain in Mexico has well, been validated I'm by the courts to be effective and legal. On Remain in Mexico, you know, we hear this from Republicans a lot yeah. that want it to be back in place, but the Mexican government doesn't want it. They've made that clear. So, so I mean, it's not really possible, is it, for the United States to put it in place if the Mexican government says, we don't want this? Well, I think it is. I think the Biden administration really hasn't fought hard for it. Uh, you've got to negotiate with the Mexican government, just as we did in 2018 and 2019, to get that in place. Uh, that was the same response the Mexican government had when we talked to them initially about that program. Um, and so there's a lot of things that can be done. You just, it takes leadership, it takes will, and it takes some hard negotiations and some hard conversations. Uh, but you need to do that. It's an effective program and it will work again. Uh, President Biden spoke right after we heard from your former boss, Donald Trump, also on the border today. I just wanna play a little bit of what Trump said in his remarks uh, in Eagle Pass. He said the people that 
are coming into our country. And they're coming from jails, and they're coming from prisons, and they're coming from mental institutions, and they're coming from insane asylums, and they're terrorists. We have languages coming into our country. We have nobody that even speaks those languages. As you know, the border is a legitimate issue, but why make things up while talking about it? Why not just talk about the border itself? I don't know that the president, uh, former President Trump, is is making anything up. I think if you look at all of the uh, arrests that ICE made last year, half of them, over 50 percent, were criminal aliens. And so I think what he's saying is there are some bad individuals coming into this country illegally through a wide open southern border, and we need to be concerned about that. And he's also talking but about no the number of, of countries and the number of nationalities that are being people. picked up along the border. Sorry, but Caitlin, what was that? When he, the, we've asked the Trump campaign the first time, it was years ago, when he, he said that mental institutions were emptying their places, that doctors were complaining they didn't have any patients in their mental institutions in other countries because they were all being sent across the southern border. And there's no evidence to back that up. I mean, why make that claim that's not true when you can actually point to legitimate things on the border, I think is my point here. Yeah. So, look, I, I think there's uh, there's a lot of evidence. There's a lot of evidence that a number of bad individuals that are coming across that border that are criminals in their home countries, in countries in, in Central America, South America and Venezuela and the like. And they're coming across this country. And how do we know that? Because we eventually pick them up and we do arrest them. And as we start to look into their backgrounds, we understand that they have criminal records in their home country. So I think that's the concern. And that's what Americans are, are really concerned about is not only the illegality of what's going on along that southern border, but the safety and the security uh, in communities like Athens, Georgia and elsewhere. Yeah, but you're making one point, and I understand that, but he's making another sure. about mental institutions. There, there's just no evidence to back it up. And I think I, I don't understand why you keep saying it if it's not true. Well, again, I, I think the president obviously speaks for himself, but he has real life experience, obviously being president for four years, understanding the types of individuals. I was in the Oval Office and briefing him many times on the types of individuals and the types of groups that are coming across that border. Right, but you never he saw sees evidence what of the I think mental most institutions. Reasonable Americans right, see is that there are a number of bad individuals that continue to come across this border that the Biden administration is, uh, they know this. They have the same stats and the same statistics, and they're not putting any policies in place to stop them. Well, they have signed a lot of executive orders, but okay, I just, I, I wanted, uh, I didn't hear any evidence about this one thing. We still haven't heard anything. I just wanted to ask you about that. Chad Wolf, as always, thank you for coming on tonight. Appreciate you joining us. All right, thank you. Up next, our exclusive interview with Senator Bernie Sanders, his take on the presidential election, how President Biden is doing. Also, a major issue that he believes President Biden needs to address. Gunfire, panic and pandemonium at food lines in Gaza today that left more than 100 people dead, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. A warning that some of the images you are about to see in this report are graphic. We have aerial footage that is provided by the Israel Defense Forces. It shows the civilians, as you can see here, desperately swarming aid trucks for food as the United Nations has warned Gaza is on the brink of famine. This is the aftermath of the carnage that unfolded. Bodies picked up and carted away, piled on the back of the truck that you can see here. We are now hearing two starkly different accounts from the IDF and from Palestinian officials and eyewitnesses about how and why in that ensuing chaos, many of the victims were run over by those aid trucks. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is on the ground in Tel Aviv.
Well, Caitlin, let's start with what eyewitnesses on the ground tell us happened. Early this morning before dawn, a convoy of aid trucks made its way into the western part of Gaza City. It was immediately swarmed by hundreds of people desperate to grab any humanitarian aid. Some of those individuals jumped on top of those aid trucks, grabbing bags of flour and whatever else they could take. Uh, but within minutes, we're told that the Israeli military then opened fire on that crowd, sending people running in all directions and preparing compelling the drivers of those trucks to hit the gas, running into that crowd, killing dozens of people in the process. Now, Khader Al-Zanun, a local journalist who has worked with us before, tells us that about 20 people, he believes, were killed by the initial gunfire, but that the majority of those people were killed in the ensuing chaos. Now, the Israeli military offers a very different timeline. They say that there was first a stampede uh, and those aid truck drivers running over people, and that it was only after that happened that uh, Israeli forces nearby fired on another group of Palestinians who they say were approaching them in what they describe as a threatening manner. Now, the Israeli military says that it will investigate this incident, uh, but uh, those uh, accounts by the Israeli military obviously contradict what we're hearing from witnesses on the ground. The bottom line, though, the Palestinian Ministry of Health says that at least 112 people have been killed in this incident, more than 760 people injured, adding to this grim death toll that we hit on Thursday of more than 30,000 people killed. And it's also very clear that if this situation continues, in particular in northern Gaza, where people have very little access to food, very few aid trucks are making it through, that more people will die, not just by bombs and bullets, but also by starvation, as the World Food Program warns that about half a million Palestinians are on the brink of, uh, of all-out famine. Now, this could also complicate those negotiations that are happening for a temporary ceasefire. President Biden warning that it will complicate those talks. Caitlin. Jeremy Diamond, thank you for that report. And as he noted, President Biden is weighing in on this, talking about what that violent scene could mean for those ongoing painstaking negotiations that have been underway for a ceasefire, a ceasefire that I should note earlier this week, President Biden predicted could happen as soon as Monday. I'll just we're checking that out right now. The superseded version of what happened. I don't have an answer yet. Are you worried about what complications negotiations? I know it. He's not saying that he is predicting it could. He says he knows that it will affect these negotiations that have been underway, come close and fallen apart. Just this week, the president witnessed the impact that his handling of this war could have on his political chances come November. I sat down exclusively with Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders to talk about that reality and what he thinks should happen next. Senator, thank you for being here. It's great to, to sit down with you. We saw the Democratic primary play out in Michigan and over 100,000 voters voted uncommitted in a protest of how President Biden has handled the war that Israel is waging in Gaza. Is that a warning sign to the White House, in your view? I think it is. Uh, I mean, I think all over this country, people are looking at what's going on in Gaza and really cannot believe what they're seeing. I mean, it's not only that 30,000 Palestinians have been killed and 70,000 wounded, two-thirds of them are women and children. But, Caitlin, what we are looking at at this moment is the starvation of hundreds of thousands of children. And that is because of Israeli bombardments, and that is because of the restrictions at the border preventing humanitarian aid from getting in. This is absolutely unacceptable. 
And in my view, I've said this a million times, the United States should not be giving Netanyahu and his extreme right-wing government another nickel for their war efforts that are killing so many innocent Palestinians. When the White House says, you know, we're listening to these voters who, who have that same exact concern that you do about the aid that is going to Israel with no restrictions on it, the president has sent campaign aides to talk to Arab Americans. He sent White House officials, including national security aides. But should he himself be having these conversations directly? It's not, a sense. It's not whether it's him or his aides. It's what the policy is. That's what's important. And what the president has got to do, in my view, is tell Netanyahu, sorry, you're not getting another nickel of U.S. taxpayer money to murder women and children uh, in Gaza. That has to be a major change in the uh, Israeli policies. It has a lot to do with the two-state two solution and where we go at the end of this war. If he doesn't do that, do you think those 100,000 voters won't come home in November? Well, I don't want to. Nobody can speculate it. Nobody knows. You haven't talked to 100,000 of them lately, have you? Nobody has. So, but I do think this. Uh, the contrast between Biden and Trump is pretty clear. And I think most of those people who voted for uncommitted understand that. Uh, Biden has done, by and large, a good job for working people. He understands that climate change is real. Uh, and on the other hand, you have Donald Trump, who is a pathological liar, who wants to deny every woman in America the right to control her own body, uh, who doesn't even understand that climate change is real. So I think the choice is clear, but I think there are a lot of people uh, who are upset about the president's policies regarding the, the war in Israel. You've been really outspoken in calling for a ceasefire, and you're a champion of policies on the left. I mean, everyone witnessed your runs for president. You, though, have also faced some of, of what President Biden has when he's out speaking publicly, which is, is people calling for ceasefires or calling for you to call it a genocide, something that you have not. Yeah, I know. I, that's true. But I don't know that we want to be arguing whether it's a mass slaughter or a genocide. It's kind of a technical term that the International Court of Justice is looking at. Look, the real issue is with 30,000 dead and 70,000 wounded and hundreds of thousands of children starving to death, I would hope that every sane American wants this war ended and ended right now. And that's the role that the United States has got to play. And we have a special role because we have supported Israel for many, many years, three and a half billion dollars in military aid every year. And now there are those in Congress who want to give them another $10 billion to continue this war. So I think the goal right now is for us to rally around the effort to say no more military aid for Netanyahu in this terrible war. More from that interview with Senator Bernie Sanders right after this as he fights to address America's retirement crisis, asking the question, do you want to be working until you're 80? The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Many Americans fear that what they've been are supposed to be their golden years won't actually be so golden. If you have concerns that you'll never be able to stop working, you're not alone. Just 43% of Americans, based on the latest numbers, believe that they'll be able to retire 
when they want. That is the lowest that number has been since 2012. And it's a reality that I dug into with Senator Bernie Sanders. Let's talk about why we're in this hearing room. You just wrapped up a hearing earlier on the retirement crisis in the U.S. And one number that you put out in your report that really stood out to me, you said 52% of Americans who are 65 and older live on less than $30,000 annually, and that one in four survive on less than $15,000 per year. You're right. I mean, that really, when I read these statistics that my staff put together, it, it is stunning. And Caitlin, if you put that within the context of the richest country in the history of the world, and at a time when the people on top have never, ever done better, when three people are more wealth than the bottom half of American society, I hope we all conclude that we can do a lot better for seniors than we are currently doing. Is it a point where retirement is a bit of a luxury in the United States? Well, one of the witnesses you may have uh, seen this morning uh, was a woman who uh, was with the United, is with the United Automobile, where she's an uh, auto worker. And she described the difference in her situation today as somebody who currently has no pension with her grandparents who did have a pension. Now, what we used to have in this country is a defined benefit pension system, which was pretty prevalent. In other words, you work for your company, for a certain number of years, and you knew that when you retired, there would be a certain sum of money coming into your bank account every single month. By and large, that is gone. So in my view, we've got to do two things. At a time when corporations are enjoying record-breaking profits, we've got to say to them, you know what, you've got to establish uh, a defined benefit pension plan for your workers. There are various ways that you can do it. That's number one. Number two, we've got to deal with Social Security. For many, many Americans, especially lower income, working class Americans, the Social Security benefits that they're getting today are inadequate. So what do we have to do? We've got to do something very simple. Right now, you make $1.6 million a year. I make $160,000 a year. Guess who pays more in Social Security taxes? We pay the same. You pay the same. Because there is a ceiling on what you can pay. And to be clear, that's not my salary. You're just using a hypothetical. <laughs> no, <that's> <laughs> I don't want people going crazy when they watch this. But on that note, Senator Cassidy, who was in here, he, he said that's out, an outdated model. He talked about obviously now we've shifted to where, you know, it's the responsibility is more on the employee than the employer. Yeah, no kidding. But on Social Security, you know, it is set to become insolvent soon. And it seems like everyone understands that. But no one really wants to address it because of the political pitfalls. That's what is the realistic way to handle it? Caitlin, it's not a political pitfall. The rich get richer. The rich have lobbyists all over Washington, D.C. Billionaires make enormous campaign contributions. And you know what their main issue is? Don't tax us. Hey, I'm only worth $8 billion. He's worth $10 billion. That's not fair. Don't tax me anymore. So the result of that is a taxicab driver has an effective tax rate, which is higher than billionaires. So of course they don't want, this is a class issue. Of course the rich don't want to pay more in taxes, most of them. There are some who are willing to do it. But you tell me if it makes any sense to you when we're struggling to make Social Security solvent that you got billionaires who pay the same amount into the Social Security Trust Fund as somebody making 168000 Makes no sense. But, you know, you have people who work for the rich and not for their constituents. And that's why we are where we are. One idea we hear from Republicans, especially in the Republican primary race, was this idea of raising the retirement age. Brilliant idea. Yes, it is. Yes, we got people, 87-year-olds, packing groceries in a supermarket. You know, really? 
people have worked hard their whole lives. This is the richest country in the history of the world. Raise the retirement needs, cut benefits? I don't think so. The alternative approach, which makes eminent sense to me and the vast majority of the American people, is demand that the people on top finally stop paying their fair share of taxes so we can expand benefits. Do not raise the retirement age. That is cruel. I mean, to tell people who worked like that woman in a factory, you know, for her whole life that she's got to work two or three more years, I don't think so. On this issue overall, one thing that stood out from the hearing is just listening to people's financial situations and what people are going through. And one thing we often hear from the White House is that, you know, despite how people are feeling, the economy is doing better, their lives are improving since Biden took office. But what happens when people don't feel that way? That's a very good question. So there are two realities here. Number one, unemployment is low. You want to get a job in most states? You can go out and get a job. That's a pretty good thing. Uh, We are rebuilding American manufacturing, creating manufacturing jobs. That is a good thing. So in a lot of ways, the economy, in fact, is doing well. But there is another reality. This is an astounding fact. Over the last 50 years, five zero years, despite a huge increase in worker productivity and technology, the average American worker today in real inflation accounted for dollars is earning less than he or she did 50 years ago. That is insane. There's been a massive transfer of wealth from the working class to the top 1%. Now, I know we don't talk about that much on TV, and we don't talk about it much in Congress, but that is the reality. We're a rich country, but almost all of the wealth is going to the people on top. 60% Americans are working paycheck to paycheck. So what you really need is a movement, and we're beginning to see that with the unions, of people standing up and saying no to corporate greed, creating an economy that works for all, not just a few. We've seen the unions, the UAW, you mentioned a worker who was here at your your hearing. They've endorsed President Biden come November. We talked about his issues with Arab Americans, but he's also facing issues with other groups as well that brought him to the White House. Do you think he can hold together a winning coalition come November? I think so, but it you know it depends on the nature of the campaign that he runs. I would hope that he says to the American people, look, we have accomplished a lot. There's a lot that he should be very proud of. You know, we, we forget, Caitlin, three years ago, in the midst of the ter- terrible COVID pandemic, unemployment soared, the economy virtually collapsed. Thousands of people were dying every day. Everybody was scared to death about this terrible disease. We came out of that economic downturn a lot faster than the economists thought we would because we passed the American Rescue Plan. Uh, So he has, I think, a lot to talk about, but he has also got to recognize that over the last many, many decades, we have seen a growing gap between the very rich and everybody else. Corporate profits are soaring. Elderly people are living in in poverty. So what he needs to do is say it, make it very clear. He is going to stand with the working class of this country around an agenda that works for everybody, not just the people. Is he doing that enough right now, in your view? He's not. I mean, there are things that I think uh, can be done. I think you have to say very loudly and clearly, and he does, but not quite as strongly as I would like. You've got Republicans right here in this room who want to repeal the estate tax, which applies to the top one-tenth of one percent. I want to get massive over a period of years, trillions of dollars in tax breaks to the top one-tenth with one percent, and then they want to cut back on programs for the working class and the elderly. Does that make any sense to me? He's got to take them to task and stand up and make it clear that if Trump and Republicans gain control of the Congress, the rich are going to do very, very well. Working people are going to be hurting.
maybe we'll see that at the State of the Union next week. Let's talk about you in November. Me? You have not announced what you plan to do. Are you going to run for re-election? Well, that's between me and the people of the state of Vermont, and I'll make that at the appropriate time, make that decision. Do you think you'll make it before May, your filing deadline? <laughs> I guess so. Okay, well, hopefully you'll come back here on The Source and tell us. And we will, of course, keep you updated when Senator Sanders does tell us what he plans to do come November. It's a big question on Capitol Hill. Also here tonight, the city of Las Vegas has been such a powerful force in the zeitgeist lately, hosting the Super Bowl, wowing audience in its futuristic new venue, The Sphere. Now, the new CNN original series, Vegas, the story of Sin City, takes us on an incredible journey from the city's origins as a dusty desert town to the entertainment mecca that it is today. The gentleman who was auditioning us listened to two songs, and he got up to leave, and I thought, well, <laughs> back to school. And he said, if we can get you a work permit, I'll hire you for two weeks. The two-week engagement turned into a five-year contract. And that original series, you don't want to miss it. Vegas, the story of Sin City, is going to continue with a new episode Sunday night here at 10 o'clock Eastern on CNN. Up next for us here tonight, though, the new superintendent of the Uvalde schools is now pleading with Congress for help to prevent future mass shootings nearly two years after the Robb Elementary shooting. She's here to join me next. A grand jury in Uvalde, Texas, is now weighing criminal charges against officers who responded to the 2022 school massacre at Robb Elementary as officers waited a notorious 77 minutes to confront the gunman. Even his children were repeatedly calling 911 and begging for help. 19 students and two teachers were murdered that day. And two years later, nearly, the community is still calling for accountability and for action to help keep schools safe. So my next guest, the new Uvalde superintendent, is in Washington pleading with lawmakers to do more to help their community. And Ashley Colas joins me now. Ashley, it's great to have you here. You know, you just assumed this role as superintendent about three months ago. You're in Washington right now for a reason, because you're talking to lawmakers. And I was struck by something you wrote in a recent op-ed where you said the money and the heartache that it takes to recover from these tragedies is far greater than the money that districts need to prevent them. Do you think that message broke through on Capitol Hill today? You know, I do. Um, we had a very positive reception from both Republicans and Democrats whenever we talked to them today. So I'm hopeful that they heard the message that we need additional funding for mental health resources uh, and safety and security resources, especially for rural districts like mine. And one big part of this that you need is, is, is $20 million, no small fee, but that's to help finish paying for the replacement school for Robb Elementary. You know, on that front, given that enormous sum, what did the lawmakers say about that? Did they offer any assurances to you about the funding? You know, I think that they're going to try um, to work through that with us. Uh, we are hopeful that they will do the best that they can uh, to assist us to replace um, our elementary school. Yeah, and I know you, you talked about the grants and the difficulty that, that some districts like yours have in, in applying for these grants because it does take so much time and you don't necessarily have someone to, whose job solely it is to do that. When you, when you look at that and the other enormous aspects that come with this job and just a community that's still reeling from what happened nearly two years ago, I mean, 
I wonder what you feel about the weight of the role of, of this job that you've taken. You know, um, it's, it is uh, trying to bring hope to a community that has lost so much. Um, I am, I'm honored, quite honestly, to be in the role. And uh, I love working with the community. It's a beautiful community. And we are going to do everything that we can uh, as a team. I work with a wonderful group of administrators. And our goal is to uh, present a beautiful plan to um, put the community back together through the kids. And so we're going to do that in um, a very connected way. And I'm looking forward to doing that work with them. So, Ashley Colas, we hope you'll come back in the future. Thank you. And thank you all so much for joining us. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.